Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Floor and Decor. Largest selection of hard surface flooring and lowest prices guaranteed. Bobby, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hey, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. How about you? Doing well. Well, here's my question or situation is I'm a new realtor and I, I'm here in Arlington, Texas. I listed a house up in Denton last month, put it under contract pretty quick, and the other agent came in with a foundation inspection and then slapped us with a repair request for about $10,000. Okay. So we so we, we we didn't see it, and we had hired an engineer to come in, and the engineer came back and says, no problems found with foundation, recommend no work. The other agent went ballistic on us and demanded that we, we do that. So I'm just asking, uh, of course, his whole thing was, as soon as I walked in the house, I felt foundation problems, and uh, and we want you to fix this foundation while we're back down contract. His whole thing was, and the engineer's report is nothing compared to the foundation right. report. So what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, as a foundation repair contractor myself, I will tell yeah. you that the engineer trumps the contractor every single time. The okay. contractor only has an opinion, and the engineer has a degree, the piece of paper that says he knows what he's doing. If the other side disagrees with your engineer, tell them to get their own engineer. Okay. So that was just that's just been bothering me that that he um and he's an actual veteran uh, realtor yeah here in the area and and of course I guess he was just trying to push me around because I uh, this is my second career now so but uh, that's just just it just curiosity what engineering firm did you get out there uh, I believe it was Thomas Engineering out of four okay I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, yeah. But yeah, if, if he's an engineer, Thompson, who's, I'm sorry, Thompson. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, if he's used to doing foundation inspections, and I'm assuming that he took elevation readings. Correct. Yes. High to low. What are the differences? I, I don't have that in front of me, so I couldn't tell you. Okay. You know, yeah. a, a lot of times people get a little too wrapped up in the elevation readings. Uh, a house can yes, be, sir. my brother built a house. We shot the foundation the day after they poured it. It was an inch and a half out of level. I mean, they're not poured tabletop level to begin with. And so you you can't go strictly off those readings. What, and, and this is just for everybody listening. When you're looking for foundation problems, yes, you're looking at sloping floors, but you need to be having cosmetic damage with it, doors it, are out of alignment, cracks in the sheetrock. And these are all things that could have been repaired, but typically you can see that it's been repaired. If it's a brick home, cracks that were in the brick veneer, gaps between the brick and the window frame on the outside. These are all signs that, yes, there's movement. But if you don't have those signs and you don't have readings showing that this thing's out of level, uh, I got an idea that they're just trying to get a good deal that they don't deserve. Yes, and, and and that's what I suspected also because, and I will say since you mentioned the the pouring the foundation, 
I do recall that he said it was a uh, a tilt in it from on the slab. Okay. Uh, so I do I do recall that now that you mentioned it. But of course, when he slapped us with this, you know, ten thousand dollar repair request, he also wanted new floors in all the rooms and th- things of that nature. So I, yeah. I suspected that that's probably what he was trying to do. Hey, it's a uh, great time for sellers in real estate. Not such a good time for buyers. Tell them to move on down the road and get another buyer. Yeah, and and honestly, uh, when I when he told me he wanted to cancel the contract, I said send the termination or the uh, send it over right now. I've got buyers waiting, and I had it under contract within the hour. So yep. you know, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, anyway, that's just that was my question. I I actually tried to. Uh, uh, I've never really been interested in this stuff until about the last year, and uh, I try to get in the car about every Saturday to drive around so I can listen to the show. So. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, just went out and did another foundation inspection, so basically come in here and take care of that. So. Yep. Well, Bobby, you have a great weekend. You too, sir. Thanks very much. Have a great Thank day. you. Bye. You know, and it is. It, it is a seller's market right now. And so if you get somebody like that who's being unreasonable on on buying your home, hey, you move on down the road, sell it to somebody else. Uh, Down the road, it's going to turn into a buyer's market again. And at that point, then you got to start playing ball with these kind of requests. But right now, if the engineer says it doesn't have an issue, it doesn't. Debbie, this is Jim. How can I help you? Uh, Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate Uh, you holding through the news break. Sure, no problem. Um, we've been in our house uh, 38 years, and um, we're on our second uh, air conditioning unit, and this one's been in more than 20 years. And um, it's working fine, knock on wood, um, but um, we want to re- replace it before we retire, which is going to be in about three years. My question is, is there a better time of year to go out and look for contractors than in the middle of the summer? You know, is there a time of year when maybe manufacturers offer rebates or incentives or or should we just not even, you know, just if you want to replace it now, we replace it now? Typically, the manufacturers start offering rebates in the fall and spring. You know, when it's uh, when the temperatures are mild is when they okay. offer the rebates. In the, in the uh, summer months and winter months, they don't because that's when people's systems are breaking. So uh, they're, they're typically not going to really offer anything at those time of year. Okay. Okay. All righty. Well, that's uh, that's good to know, and I I have already written down Advent Air as one of the <laughs> ones that we will call. So, uh, well, I and Advent is a carrier dealer. Uh-huh. When when uh, they come out, take a look at the uh, Carrier Infinity system. Okay. And the the difference is between between regular system now with Carrier, you've got you know your regular system. It's on or off. They've got a a two speed system that will initially be at thirty percent operating capacity and if it needs it it'll kick into full on but the infinity it's a variable speed system and so it's only running as much as is needed to keep the temperature comfortable in the home for you great at dehumidifying uh and and it's one of those systems that will just save you a ton on your energy bills because you said you got a 20 year old system right 20 years ago it was probably a 10 maybe an even an eight sear system that was put in and that's probably operating at about five sear right now 
Okay, okay. And when you kick it up to, you know, I wouldn't put anything less than 16 in. I'd probably be, you know, if you're going to keep the house like you're talking about, yeah. I would be looking at an 18 sear okay. system. Uh, your energy savings is going to just be massive. I mean, it's not unusual when you make that kind of jump to cut your energy bill in half. Now, a lot's going to depend on what temperature you keep the home at, but uh, it drastically reduces the amount of energy you need to use. Okay. All righty. Well, we will take a look at that. I appreciate your help. Thank you. You bet. Take care. Ah. Uh, you know, and a lot of the manufacturers have good, better, best type air conditioning systems. If you know that you're going to stay in the home, you are money ahead to buy the higher SEER rating, and you are also money ahead to start taking a look at those variable speeds. One of the huge advantages on these variable speed systems is how quiet they are inside the home. Because, you know, when you got a, uh, just an on-off type system, when it comes on, you hear it. I mean, it's blowing hard on you. Uh, if you're under one of the registers, you're sitting there freezing. When you have that variable speed, it's such a gentle movement of the air. And typically, they stay on much longer. It's using less energy because it's not having to, one, fire off and start. When, when an AC system kicks on, that's when it really draws a lot of juice. But by ramping way down and just staying continuously on, it's using very little energy. And if you get into the point where you're looking at using some of the ductless systems, the mini splits, wow, those things are even just comparison. The SEER rating on standard air conditioners, right now you can put a minimum of 14 SEER in. 16 and 18 range is typically you know, where your sweet spot is as far as what you pay for it versus uh, you know, the energy savings. You can get up to 21 SEER. That does get a little more expensive, and I'm not going to say it's not worth it because in the long haul it does save you the money. But when you start looking at the mini splits, you're jumping up into systems that are 30 and 36 SEER. Extremely energy efficient. In fact, those systems, you know, geothermal was the way to go if you were really looking for energy efficiency just five years ago. And the, the, uh, the mini splits and uh, ductless type systems, they're doing away with the geothermal because they're more energy efficient than geothermal is even. I just want an honest company to come out and advise me on what I need. We have a story and a half, but the upstairs unit can only get the two rooms to 79 degrees. I need to get it better insulated. Thank you for your time. Well, and the name is Happy. Happy, it may not be an insulation issue. I mean, yes, you need to take a look at what you have for insulation, Uh the first thing I would tell you is if you ha in an attic, you're typically looking for about 15 or 16 inches of insulation. Uh, so if you've got that and you're having this issue, it's not an insulation issue. Secondary thing, if the rooms were cooling before, but now all of a sudden they're not, that is not an insulation issue. That's an air conditioning issue. And much like we were just talking about a, a second ago, 
As an air conditioning system ages, it starts losing efficiency. If the freon or the coolant levels are too low, it will not work and cool efficiently as well. So there may be other things that are involved. So before I would start saying automatically, let's put insulation in. One, let's check and see how much insulation you have. Two, if you have enough insulation, let's get the AC unit serviced and see what's going on with it. Um, I'm kind of leaning more towards, I think this is going to be an AC problem more so than it is an insulation problem. And unfortunately, a lot of times we, we look for the easiest way to uh, solve a problem or at least expensive way. And insulation is really cheap to install, but doesn't mean it's what you need. And and let let's face it, our fifth you know, if you're looking at fifteen, sixteen inches, you're looking at somewhere between R thirty nine and R forty eight in insulation. And if your system is struggling with that, now granted upstairs uh, it can struggle, but definitely at night it needs to be bringing the temperature down and if it's not at night that's definitely going to be an ac problem and not a problem with the insulation thanks for listening to the texas home improvement super podcast now i would love your help if you enjoy listening to texas home improvement anytime you want please take a moment to rate and review this podcast help us reach more people and grow the show in texas and beyond please visit itunes or wherever you listen and Leave us a review. Is it Callan? It's actually Kalen. Hey, Kalen, how can I help you? Well, fantastic. I really appreciate your show and you taking my call. I get I try and listen to you every chance I get. Um, the question I have is um, we're fixing to start building a home in uh, kind of northeast Texas uh, in the Emory area. And the question I have is, we're going to start from scratch, and we're looking at foundation types. And I was kind of wondering your opinion uh, on the best type of either slab or whether I should go with a pure and beam, because I know there's a couple of different types of slab foundations. Um, and kind of our soil type, I have not gotten it tested. I know I need to. Yes. Um, but um, it's very sandy where we are. Uh, we don't have a lot of the black, black clay at all. Okay. Um, but a little bit of background. I, I'm actually a painter, and so a lot of my business is fixing sheetrock cracks, and so I get a little leery of found, uh, slab foundations in Texas. Um, and I know some of that, I'm sure you can explain a whole lot better than I can. But oh, I, I don't worry about it at all. I make a good living fixing them foundations. <laughs> okay. So, but, but I'm sorry, uh, go ahead. You are 100% correct. Get that soils report and design the foundation based on the soils report. It The soils report it will actually tell you, for this soil, you'd be better off to use a slab on grade, or you'd be better off to put in drills piers, or you use a pier and beam. They will actually specify what would be best for that type of, of soil when they do the soils report. Okay. If they and specify you- a slab... I personally, I mean, I, I've got nothing really against post-tension slabs, but I was talking with somebody on Thursday. If I personally am building a foundation, I still use conventional rebar. It costs a few dollars more, but it creates a very rigid foundation 
Uh, I'm not dependent on the tensioning of the cables and all that stuff. Once it's poured, you are done. And so okay. that's still my personal preference. Okay. And you would choose that over a pier and beam in Texas? Uh, not necessarily. That's the reason I, I would get the soils report. Uh, okay. I, I actually like pier and beam foundations. If you ever have to have one worked on, it's much cheaper to work on pier and beam and block and base foundations than it is a concrete slab. The biggest difference is unless it has drilled piers going down underneath a crawl space type house like that, you know, if you're just sitting on the surface, it's going to move periodically and have to be adjusted. It's relatively inexpensive to adjust, though. Uh, so if they do call for a pier and beam type foundation, more than likely they're going to put drilled piers for the columns on the interior. And okay. those things, they're awesome when they're done right. And that, that honestly is my preference. I love pier and beam homes. I love just... I, I don't know, call me nostalgic. I'm a young guy, but I love to hear the hollow under my feet whenever I walk. I don't know why. I just, I love the older homes. They are just comfortable homes. Yes, sir. Well, that, that answers my question. I Do you happen to have anybody in the Northeast area that does soil sampling that you recommend? I know it's kind of a specialty item. It is. Um, how far out of town is Emory? I, I don't. Little, I don't remember where that's. Yeah, we're we're about thirty miles north of Canton, or kind of a little northeast of Wills Point. We're about okay. thirty-eight miles south of Sulphur Springs. All right. If you'll call my office at Due West yes. Foundation Repair at nine seven two four zero six zero nine one two. I actually have a company out that way that uh, that I've used for doing some soils test. Okay. And uh, be more than happy to give them to you. I well, just don't have so it with much. me right now. Oh, I, I understand. You can't have everything for everybody all the time. Yep. <laughs> so I appreciate it very much. I, I absolutely uh, appreciate you taking the time. Oh, not a problem. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, the soils report is the key thing to making sure that you get the right foundation. And one thing, if you've got a, a crawl space home, make sure you keep it ventilated. Too often people want to close up the vents in the winter months thinking that it's uh, going to keep the floors more comfortable for them. You build up a tremendous amount of humidity underneath that actually can cause wood decay and cupping of your wood floors. By keeping it ventilated and breathing, your floors stay nice, and you don't cause wood decay. And those homes, they will last for 100 years if they're ventilated properly. Becky says, hi, Jim. I have a brick home in the floodplain. The house flooded in 94 and in 2017 with a couple of close calls in between. I'm trying to think of ways to keep water out of the house. Could I block the vents in the bottom of the brick? Then I could use sandbags at doorways to keep the water from coming in if necessary. I was just wondering if blocking the vents would cause more damage than the flooding again. Thank you. Oh, and this comes from Ronnie. Uh, well, I guess it's Becky and Ronnie. Okay, here's the deal. You are not going to keep the water out of your home by plugging 
the vents. The brick, the mortar, everything has gaps and is porous and lets moisture go through it. So, no, it's not, it's not going to keep you from flooding. If you want to keep from flooding, you would have to build a wall around the home or raise the home to keep it from flooding. Uh, just to go further on your question, would it cause more damage? The whole purpose of the vents is moisture travels through brick and mortar, and there's a gap between your brick and mortar and the wall studs themselves because the moisture goes through and runs down the back side of the wall. So if you plug the vents, yes, it can raise and start causing issues with the sill plate. Uh, not common, but it can happen. But I would not waste my time trying to plug those vents in order to try and keep my house from flooding. Really, if you want to do something, like I said, uh, raising it is what's happening right now. I Thursday, I was at uh, some FEMA meetings in the city of Houston where they are starting to release the funds now is for doing house raisings. And I've got a couple of those projects going on already right now. But that's really where it's going to be at because if you flooded twice, if you hit, get it flooded a third time, FEMA's going to come in and say, or the, the your insurance is going to come in and say, we will no longer insure your home unless you raise it. And the new codes that are going to be taking effect September 1st are going to be two foot above the 500-year floodplain. Currently, it's one foot above the 100-year floodplain, but they're going to two foot above the 500-year floodplain. So they're going to have to be raised quite a bit higher than they currently need to be going up. Uh, on top of that, there's a lot of people who have gone back and rebuilt their houses already from the floods that are now getting notices that you went over the 50% rule. And the 50% rule is if you put more than 50% of the value of the home itself, not counting the real estate, just the home, if you put more than 50% of the value of that home into remodeling it or restoring it after a flood, you've got to bring it to current standards. Elevation, electrical, all the stuff. So it, it's, it can be become quite expensive. So if you're in one of the areas where you're subject to the flooding and can get access to some of the FEMA money, by all means, I, I would encourage it. I know a lot of people didn't apply for it, and this is going to be a problem coming up. Malcolm, this is Jim. How can I help you today? Well, I have a question about post-tension foundations. Okay. We had a, some uh, housework going on the other, a month or two ago. Uh -huh. Apparently, he ground through, when he was trying to cut concrete, he ground through the a post-tension cable, which popped out on each end of the foundation. Okay. Now, what do I need to do to resolve it, or is it pretty much live with it? No, it, it needs to be reattached. Uh, did they leave the hole open where they were knocking the hole through the concrete? No, that's now covered up with slurry of concrete. We, we could bang it back out again, though. Yeah, you would end up banging it back out because what they do when a cable is cut, if they can grab the two ends, they'll pull it together put a clamp on it, and then retension the cable. If the cable yep. has popped out, 
then they end up threading a new one through the holes. And if you poured concrete in the way, you know, that has to be chipped out and then they can pick up on the other side for the other hole. So were the, were the uh, cables still sh visible in the hole? Yeah, well, one side, the cable popped just inches out of the hole. The okay. other side, it just broke the seam of the concrete. Gotcha. Okay. It, it's not that big a deal to get it fixed. Uh, if you call a post-tension cable company, a lot okay. of them come out and do the repairs. Thank you, sir. I will and, uh, you know, cost-wise, you're, you're probably going to be surprised because most people think it's going to be thousands of dollars and it's real important. And it's really not that it, it's going to run you four or five hundred maybe a little more wow that's not a, yeah i was much more concerned about a, a four-digit number yeah it's it's it doesn't get into the four unless they got something into the hole but since you got the two cables right there th this will be fairly simple for them to take care of very good thank you sir i appreciate the insight you bet take care this comes from uh, brian the front of our house is sloping down and in need of some raising. After looking at some of the vendors that do the raising, I have noticed that some do the bell-bottom piers and others drive pilings. I'm curious as to the benefits and shortcomings of each. Well, there's actually several different methods of repairs out there. As you brought up, there's bell-bottom piers, there's concrete piles that can be driven, there's steel piles that can be driven, helical piers that are screwed into the ground, and then variations on each one of these different type of underpinnings. And, and you'll have a lot of companies who will come out and tell you, oh, this is the only way to fix all homes. They only do one method. They do it on all of them. There is a reason there are all these different methods because there is a place and purpose for each of them. And I make no bones about it. I own a foundation repair company, Due West, and I do several different repair methods. And I'll give you a good example. Earlier this week, we were doing a house driving concrete piles. We only got eight sections. That's not deep enough. So we tried what we call a hybrid, steel first, then concrete. Still didn't get the depth. Went and tried a steel pile, and we went 38 feet. I had the job changed, and everything that we did on that project was driven as a steel pile. And the guys had already driven almost all the pilings, and I made them redrive everything in steel at my expense, not the homeowners, because I'm putting a lifetime warranty on it. I don't want to have to go back on the job. So it's to my benefit, even though steel piles cost more than precast concrete. So you're asking about... The, the benefits and shortcomings of each, let's start with a drilled pier. A drilled pier is very easy to verify depth. Typically what happens is you drill the pier. If you're going to have a bell bottom on the bottom, you bell it out, and that's where they stick a tool down there. And as they spin it, some arms swing out and create a wider spot at the bottom. You put rebar down in, into it and can pour the concrete. An engineer or inspector can come by after the hole is drilled and verify depth before concrete is placed. So that is one of the benefits. Shortcomings, it may not go deep enough because the equipment for drilling them as a repair technique only allows you to go so deep. A concrete press pile works great. 
it's you dig a hole and you're driving six inch diameter 12 inch long sections typically on residential there's different sizes available but that's typical for residential and you keep driving it until instead of the piling going down the structure begins to come up if in my company we don't get at least 10 sections then we start trying other things to get deeper because you want to get below the moisture change because you're transferring the load from the surface soils where the foundation is sitting to the skin friction that's built up on the side of that press pile on a drilled pier you're transferring the load from the surface to the bottom of the bell and so it's critical where you stop with all of these you want to have enough skin friction the downside on a press pile is you can stop short on driving a piling still level a house problem is it won't stay level it will move again in the future and has to be readjusted then and at that point they may be able to drive the piling steeper uh, but it's got to be tested so it, uh, it it's critical that whoever sits there and drives that pile keeps driving until he's getting lift on the structure that's how you can determine you're deep enough then we talked a, a little bit about steel piles very similar the difference is instead of being a six inch diameter steel pilings are typically two and seven eighths diameter and they're driven in the ground same until refusal or until they hit rock whichever comes first and then you do the actual leveling same downside if it's not driven deep enough you can still level but it won't hold a helical pier is actually kind of looks like a uh, a screw anchor and it's screwed into the ground using torque and the theory behind it is when the torque gets so high you're hitting stable soils and again you're transferring the load from the surface to the bottom of those helicals there is no skin friction built up to speak of and so the reason we've got all these different things a pressed concrete pile works excellent in black gumbo clay soils not so good in soils that have rock mixed in with it then I would suggest you switch over to a steel pile a drilled pier I like on lighter structures wing walls things like that uh, a helical was originally designed as a tie back and again on very light structures it works well does great for tying back things like retaining walls stuff like that so there's a purpose for each one how do you determine which one to go with well you gotta look at your soils and in some cases even when you look at the soils you end up making a switch later like I did last week so I'm not gonna say one is better than the other it all depends on the soils that you're working with Mary welcome to Texas Home Improvement Thank you. Uh, I just had a question about we're fixing to put a new metal roof on our house. We're taking the shingles off. And my question was, do we do we need to put a radiant barrier down? And if we do, do we need to leave a space in there? Or what, what you is your recommendation? A, you sent me a question. Was it yesterday or the day before? I just read I it this morning. I got it flagged oh. to use it on the air. Uh, the, Okay, in your question, you were asking one about the radiant barrier, two about putting strips down for the metal roof. Yeah. 
you've got plywood decking down and I would lay the metal roof in most cases I would lay the metal roof straight down on the metal uh, on the wood deck okay and for for a couple of reasons one you're still gonna have to ventilate the attic now if you told me you didn't have attic space I would tell you to fur it up because that would give you the ability to skin vent and allow the heat to come up between the plywood and the metal roof but Mm -hmm. you have attic space so I would go ahead and put down the uh, felt paper use use the new stuff the synthetic stuff Uh, if you want to put a radiant barrier put it in the attic okay uh, because you have access to your attic and then the reason I like to lay the metal if especially if you do are you doing a standing seam or are you doing the corrugated uh, standing seam, I think. Okay, where you got flat sections of it, right? Yes, yes. Okay. I prefer that to be on the plywood because when we get a hailstorm, and you know we're going to get one. Oh, yeah, the, that's why we're replacing the hail, Yeah, the, the, the hail, when it's got the plywood behind it, does less damage to the metal roof than if it's got okay. a space behind it. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that's that's how I would put it on. Okay, so use the felt, the synthetic felt paper down, and then yep. put my metal roof right on top of that. Yep. Okay, that was okay. And then, one other question. And then, and then one last thing: enjoy life. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now you what say, do you have another question? Vent. A ridge vent. Right yes. now, the the roof is pitched with a ridge vent. Should I put the same back with the metal, or will I have trouble with birds or anything? No, no, no. They make some great. Uh, ridge vents for metal roofs. In fact, metal roofs had ridge vents long before shingles did. Okay. Uh, and yep. and they've got they've got deals to put in there where you don't get the the birds can't get in and stuff. Okay, perfect then. So leave my ridge vents like I mean put the new metal ridge vents just like the metal yep. roof. Yep. Okay. That was my questions and thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. Have a great afternoon. I will. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. And Deborah, welcome to KRLD. How can I help you? Uh, I had a question regarding the uh, mold that's forming uh, around the grout on my bathtub. Uh And I wanted to know if if I have a problem with mold or if I just need to do something minor. Well, it's not uncommon because that's a wet area and it stays wet a lot that that starts growing mold and mildews in it so if that's the only place that you're seeing mold in the home you don't have a mold problem other than in in that particular area that needs to be addressed and typically if you'll dry that area after taking showers and stuff you can really minimize the amount of mold growth now you're going to have to put some stuff on there to to clean it up first and it will be a battle from this day forward because the mold gets down into the uh, porous material that the grout is made out of Mm -hmm. and so it will tend to fester up over time eventually you may end up taking the grout out of those corners and replacing it with a caulking that has uh, silicone in it and a mold inhibitor uh, in order to address it but uh, does a house have a mold problem? No. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. You bet, Deborah. You take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. 
214-787-1080. And, and it, it is a common thing for grout to get it. Now, here, here one of the things you need to be aware of, most grouts come with a sealer in them nowadays. And so a lot of times contractors don't seal the grout after it's installed. You can seal the grout and help with minimizing mold issues as well, even though the mold, the, the grout already comes with a sealer in it. Uh, it. It doesn't hurt it to have that other dose. Do not put the sealers in, though, if the grout's not totally clean. Uh, it, so you would have to really have it cleaned up well first. You can have it steam cleaned and things like that to really clean it up well before putting in a, a sealer if you'd like. But like I said, in most cases, because building materials expand and contract, those grout lines on the corners are notorious for getting cracks in it. Moisture gets in there. The mold starts growing. And that's why I say eventually you'll probably end up taking it out and putting a siliconized caulk that has a mold inhibitor in it. One last thing I want to talk about today though is dealing with contractors because you know like that uh, having to redo the plumbing. Mistakes happen. I want you to think about your own job. Mistakes happen at it as well. I don't care what somebody does, things can happen. It's how you deal with the problem that can make the difference and that's on the homeowner's end as well. If you start getting real horsey with the contractor straight out of the gate like nothing should ever happen, you're not going to get very far with contractors. Uh, as a contractor myself, I can tell you we're kind of hard-headed at times. And anybody who knows me will tell you I get a little hard-headed. But if you work with the contractor, they can be your best friend and get problems taken care of relatively quickly and a lot of times without any expense to you. Uh, one thing I, I will say though if the contractor's trying to do something wrong you got to stand your ground but don't be horsey about it and don't say hey you're not coming back on the property blah 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 if you're going to try to go after them to make the project right and that means if you're going to hire somebody else to come in and fix a mistake that you think they made you must give them the opportunity to repair that mistake first make sure you document everything send it to the contractor in writing and then if they still refuse to do it, then you can get somebody out there to take care of it. Anyways, keep THI in mind. THIPro.com. It's there to help you out. Have a great week. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.